Amen. You may be seated. If you have a Bible with you, you can open to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to continue our study through the, uh, the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians. And uh, if you're new to Christ Church, uh, just kind of an overview of our teaching schedule throughout the year. We uh, follow the church calendar and uh, so that we're throughout the year teaching in every kind of section of the Bible. So in the fall which is the time leading up to Christmas. Christmas is the time of the coming of Christ. We always look at an Old Testament book. And this last year we've been looking at the book of Exodus. And then from Christmas, the time of the coming of Christ, till Easter, Jesus' resurrection, we always look at a gospel. We've been looking at the gospel of John this last year. And then we had a four-part sermon series on, uh, on hospitality. And then every year around Pentecost, uh, I think Pentecost next Sunday, in uh, through the summer months, we look at one of the New Testament letters to the churches. And I think for five years, we've been looking at, at 1 Corinthians. And we're uh, in the, just the last two chapters of 1 Corinthians. This summer, 1 Corinthians 15 and 16. 1 Corinthians 15 is probably the most in-depth explanation in the whole Bible about Jesus' resurrection. And so we're going to, it'll take us a number of weeks to get through just chapter 15. We're looking at it paragraph by paragraph. And we're now in the second paragraph of that chapter. And so we're just looking at a few verses. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 8. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along right there in the bulletin. This is the word of the Lord. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also... To me, For I am the least of the apostles unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we uh, praise you for your abundant love for us. We praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in your holy word. We pray that you would open our eyes to behold wonders in your word that you would give us ears to hear what you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we open our hearts and minds to you as we uh, study now your word and we pray for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you're here last week, uh, we looked at the first part of, of 1 Corinthians, which gives kind of a summary of the gospel. It's the most fundamental beliefs that Christians hold that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. On the third day, he was raised from the dead. And then in that part of the letter, uh, Paul gives a list of a number of people who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' resurrection after he was raised from the dead. These were people that met him and saw him. There's actually a group of 500 people at one time. And our verse this morning, our passage this morning, picks up at with the last person in the list of people who encountered the risen Lord. Uh, and you see that there in verse 8 of the, verse, the passage we just read where it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Jesus, the risen Lord, appeared also 
to the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of 1 Corinthians, and he had an encounter with Jesus after Jesus' resurrection that changed Paul's life forever. And actually, if you read in the book of Acts, if you go to the book of Acts, you'll find that Paul's conversion, how his life was changed when he met Jesus, the risen Lord, is recorded three times in the book of Acts. And, you know, in the ancient world, they didn't have a lot of paper. So, you know, when you're telling a story, you usually don't record a story three times because that uses up a lot of paper, unless that story is really important. And so in Acts 9, Acts 22, and Acts 26, you have this whole story recorded. And actually in other places in the New Testament, Paul's life story, his conversion is recorded for us. And it raises a question of why the Apostle Paul's personal life story was so important. And the answer to that question comes in another letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor named Timothy, 1 Timothy 1. Paul tells uh, Timothy, you know, the message that he was given was that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, and I'm the worst of them. And the reason that Jesus saved me, the worst of sinners, the reason he had showed, gave mercy to me is so that when I went out and preached the gospel, my life was like a flesh and blood example to everyone of what Jesus does to a person's life, how he transforms a person's life. So he didn't just have a message, he had a life that communicated the message. And so Paul's testimony, his conversion of his life ch changing was a flesh and blood picture of how the gospel changes a person's life. And Today, these verses I just read to you are a short summary of Paul's conversion. And I think that they have, these verses have really profound insights for us. As we think about the question, how does a person's life change? How does the Bible say a person's life change? And that might be an important question many of us have. You know, we see things in our life that we think should be changed. Or we know that God wants us to change in certain ways. I'm not sure how that happens. Well, um, this passage tells us kind of three stages to how the gospel changes our lives. And these are the three stages that we're going to kind of study carefully together this morning. They are that we have to expose our shame, we have to accept God's grace, and we have to experience God's power. Three stages for how our life changes is that we have to expose our shame, we have to accept God's grace, and we have to experience God's power. Each of those three steps is really essential to how uh, we experience uh, God working in our lives. And I think Paul has profound insights for us from this passage. So three things this morning. How do people change? The first answer is this. We have to expose our shame. And, you know, shame is a huge topic in our culture right now. I'm going to spend a fair amount of time on the first point of this sermon. And I'd like to talk about both what this text and what the Bible says about shame and also what does our culture have to say about shame. I think it's important for us as Christians we understand both of these things. So first, what does this text say about shame? What does the Bible say about shame? And, you know, our uh, staff, I've mentioned this every uh, uh, every week, our, some of our staff get together and look at the sermon text that we're going to be having the teaching on Sunday morning. And, you know, we all kind of give feedback and get ideas from one another. And when we read this passage to talk about it, you know, uh, Jesse Clausen, our women's discipleship lead, her comment was, Paul in this passage sounds like a man who has wrestled with his shame. And you can see in these verses that Paul piles on these words that seem to say that Paul has a pretty kind of low 
view of himself. You see it there in verse 8 where it says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Four words he uses to describe his shame. And you might wonder, actually, that first word, you know, he's one that was untimely born. What is that talking about? What does it mean that Paul was untimely born? Well, you know, some people have thought that what he's talking about is that most of the apostles, when they met Jesus, when he was risen from the dead, it was right after Jesus rose from the dead. And then, but Paul, it was unique that his happened much later. And he, at a different time. So he's kind of one untimely born. Well, the problem with that is that the word for the Greek word for untimely born there is, is the word for an abortion. And uh, the word doesn't actually mean being born too late. If anything, it, it, maybe it's a miscarriage or, you know, someone who's born too early. And some people have thought, you know, wow, that's a pretty graphic image for Paul say, you know, and me, I'm the least, I'm, the, I'm, I'm an aborted fetus. And you're like, wow, what is, what is he talking about? And some thought, you know, maybe Paul's talking about his physical appearance, that he was he was kind of ugly. Uh, you know, there's some reason to think that Paul was not attractive, that maybe he had an eye disease. Um, I think it's the Galatians where, you know, he talks about them, you know, offering to, if they could like give them his, his eyes to, to save him from this eye disease. And, you know, Paul talked about how he'd come to churches and, you know, he was really powerful in writing these letters. You know, he wrote these amazing letters that were really powerful. And then he'd show up and everyone's like, you're the mighty apostle Paul. You know, he's kind of, it wasn't very charismatic, wasn't a very good speaker. He's kind of unattractive. And so maybe that's what he's talking about is, you know, I was kind of ugly. That could be it. Probably, though, the most likely explanation is that Paul is comparing himself to the other apostles who got to live with Jesus for three years before the resurrection. If you read about the the other apostles and their time with Jesus during those three years, it's just filled with blunders. You know, they really don't know what they're doing. They make all kinds of mistakes. They're these sinners. And they had a little time to kind of be in the womb before they really are, you know, born into their mission to serve Jesus. But Paul didn't get the three years with Jesus. And actually, uh, Paul had been complicit in the murdering of a, of a Christian leader. And he was actively persecuting Christians. He was going to put some uh, Christians in prison when the risen Jesus showed up and appeared to him. And so uh, it's like Paul is saying, when I met Jesus, I was a monster. I was nowhere near fully developed And suddenly Jesus invaded my life. And there is a certain shame that Paul carries with him. He talks about in his letters that he carries with him uh, throughout his life. And in some ways, this passage that we're looking at is describing how did Paul deal with his shame. And I think dealing with shame in our lives is, is one of the most essential components to experiencing change And I think we need to understand that shame is a complicated thing to understand because, you know, the Bible recognizes that we all have a combination of what you might call legitimate shame and illegitimate shame. You know, so for example, you know, I feel ashamed if I like blow up at my kids and get really angry about something. I was like, whoa, that was an overreaction. I feel really bad how hard I came down on them. And you say, you know what, that's an appropriate kind of shame. That's sinful. I should feel shame for my sin. Or, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I was 
kind of painfully quiet. I just never really talked. And, uh, and I remember one day there was this cheerleader who came up to me, and she's just like, why don't you ever talk? It's like, it's so weird. Why don't you say something? And I was, you know, I turned all red. And I was like, I don't know why I don't talk, you know. And, uh, and I was totally embarrassed. And, you know, so I feel that would be actually an illegitimate shame because, you know, the Bible says it doesn't say there's anything wrong with being quiet. Actually, the Bible says it's better to hold your tongue. I think we should all talk. The Bible says we should all talk a little less. And so... For me to be able to feel ashamed that I'm quiet is illegitimate shame. And, you know, different authors have found ways to kind of distinguish between legitimate and illegitimate shame. You know, some of you might know Brene Brown, who writes a lot about shame and vulnerability. And the way she puts it, she distinguishes shame, illegitimate, from guilt. She would describe guilt as, you know, something that we call sin. We've sinned against God or we've gone against the Bible. That's something that we feel guilty for. Or other people will say, you know, shame is more of a feeling about what I am, you know, like I am worthless. I am, you know, I'm good for nothing. Whereas, you know, legitimate shame or guilt is about something that I've done. You know, for example, let's say my coworker gets a raise that I wanted and I hate them for it. You know, it's envy. I should feel shame for doing that. I shouldn't do that. So that, that would be guilt. But both kinds of shame will have a profound impact on our lives, both legitimate shame and illegitimate shame. And the good news is that Jesus saves us from both kinds of shame. But it is important, I think, as Christians, that we distinguish between legitimate shame and illegitimate shame. Because the person who's experiencing illegitimate shame needs to hear, you are an image bearer of God. Your uh, life is charged with dignity and worth and beauty. God has made you good. You need to know that. It's being a human being. That's what the Bible says about you. The person experiencing legitimate shame, though, on the other hand, needs to acknowledge their sinfulness and repent and turn to Christ for forgiveness. There's two pretty different responses to these two different kinds of shame, so they need to be distinguished. What we're reading about in these verses is Paul's legitimate shame. He murdered Christians. And yet, you know, he's come to terms with his shame in such a way that, you know, throughout the New Testament, he talks openly about it. I mean, that's pretty amazing how openly he talks about his shame. And he shows us that a person does not experience transformation until they have faced and exposed the legitimately shameful parts of who they are and brought them to Jesus. So, what does this passage, what does the Bible say about shame is it needs to be faced and exposed if we're going to experience transformation. But I also want to ask the question, well, what, is, what does our culture have to say about shame? And I think probably the most uh, powerful recent song about shame that many of you know is, is from the movie The Greatest Showman. And there's a song called This Is Me. And if you haven't seen the movie, it's a, it's a story about all these circus performers who, you know, they're all kind of outcasts. And there's a scene where the leader of this, this circus has uh, gone into a, a, like a, a cocktail party with all these kind of, you know, upper class rich people. And the circus performers are not allowed in. And so the bearded woman sings this song of kind of defiance of this feeling ashamed of feeling rejected and feeling cast out. And I'm going to read to you the words of the song. This is what it says. I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, because we don't want your broken parts. I've learned 
to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say. No one will love you as you are. But I won't let them break me down to dust. I know that there's a place for us for we are glorious. When the sharpest words want to cut me down. I'm going to send a flood, going to drown them out. I am brave. I am bruised. I am who I'm meant to be. This is me. Look out, because here I come. And I'm marching on to the beat I drum. I'm not scared to be seen. I make no apologies. This is me. And I'd say it's a powerful song. And I, I would say as Christians, there are a lot of things about this song that we would resonate with and say, this is powerful. This is some of the message that Jesus was communicating was welcoming the outcast. But I think that last statement is the core of how our culture approaches the topic of shame. I make no apologies. This is me. And this is true. You know, you should not make apologies for illegitimate shame. If you have illegitimate shame about something, you shouldn't apologize for it because it's not a sin. And you know, that's something I often think about my illegitimate shame. Does the Bible say it? I can't be quiet? No, I'm not going to feel ashamed of it if the Bible doesn't say it. And what Paul is showing us here is that, uh, but what Paul is showing us in this passage is that we all have legitimate shame and we absolutely have things that we need to apologize for. And I mean, you know, all of us have worked maybe with a person or maybe have someone in your family, maybe this is you, who will never admit there is something wrong with them. And they don't feel shame about the way they treat people and they say things, well, you know, this is me. This is just my personality. And I make no apologies and you need to live with it. Do you want to work with that person? <laughs> we don't want to work with that person. And the frightening thing is that the only way that our culture deals with shame is with pride. What do we do about shame that we experience in our culture? We have pride parades. I will live how I want to live. No one can tell me different or make me feel bad for who I am. And our culture would never say what Paul says here. I'm an aborted fetus. I'm worse than anyone else, unworthy of anything, and I'm an evil person. Our culture wouldn't, would, would say, Paul, you need to go to a counselor and talk about how you're talking about yourself. Like your self-esteem is really low here. And as Christians, we have to be alarmed because Christians have always said that the greatest sin, the source of all evil in the world, is pride. Shame is a very real problem, and pride is not the answer. And so our first point about how people change is that we must expose our shame. And the Bible recognizes that all of us have a complex mixture of legitimate shame and illegitimate shame. We have to sort out and say, is this legitimate shame? Is this illegitimate shame? And the way our culture tries to deal with our shame is through pride. But how does the Bible say that we should deal with our shame? Both the legitimate and illegitimate shame. How does the Bible say we should deal with it? Well, what Paul says in these verses is that what we need to address our shame is not pride, but grace. Radically different answer. And that's the second point about how people change. It's not just that we need to expose our shame, but second, we have to accept God's grace. Grace is the answer to shame. And it's interesting that the way that Paul describes himself after receiving grace sounds kind of like this is me, right? What does he say in verse 10? But by the grace of God... I am what I am. It's a great statement. I just think it's, it's a, such a beautiful statement of kind of emotional health. I am what I am. 
And, you know, because there's both a real humility in saying, I am what I am. Uh, you know, it's remarkable. You know, Paul's the pastor of this church, the Corinthian church. And Paul's had a lot of problems with the Corinthian church not respecting his authority. You know, he planted the church. He's their spiritual father, and they love chasing after all these other teachers, and they don't listen to him. And so you'd think he'd try to say, like, how great he is, but he just puts it right out there. You're right. I'm the least of the apostles. I'm unworthy to be an apostle. I was a persecutor of the church. Um, he doesn't hide these things from them. And then in verse 11, look at what Paul says. He says, whether then it was I or they, you know, the other apostles, so we preached and so they believed. And he says, listen, you know, if it's their ministry that's changing, you're hearing the gospel or you heard it from me, it doesn't matter. There's no sense of competition. It's not trying to prove that he's better than anyone else. This was a real humility to saying, you know, by God's grace, I am what I am. But that real humility is combined with a real confidence too, right? You see that in the second part of verse 10? And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The Apostle Paul had an immensely fruitful ministry. You know, he planted churches all over the Mediterranean world, trained all kinds of leaders. He wrote like a quarter of the New Testament. And I mean, his writings are truly some of the most profound philosophical, religious, pastoral, even political documents like written in the history of the world. I mean, the man is truly brilliant. And he knows the fruit of his work. He, he, there's no false modesty here. And so Paul has, you know, what you could call kind of a sober self-image, his heart is not puffed up with pride, nor does he say, I'm good for nothing. He is able to say, I am what I am. There's a security there. And I know for me, I'm like, man, that is <laughs> it's how I'd love to view my life. Like, I am what I am. How do you learn to like, have that kind of self-image? Well, his answer is, by the grace of God. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And, you know, uh, yesterday, our, some of the men in our church were up on a men's retreat, and a group of guys went on a, the Lake Ann Trail. We did a, a hike uh, for a while, and, you know, I, was, I had some work to do on my sermon. And so I was like, hey, can we talk about my sermon a little bit? Uh, and we started talking about this verse. And uh, Matt Boffey was talking about, you know, the experience that many of us have, that there's certain people in our lives that, you know, maybe it's our family or, or just friends that we grew up with. They have been with us through many stages. And we just feel totally comfortable being around them. You know, and like with most people, we're kind of performing. You know, we're trying to say the right things. We're trying to kind of fit in and do what's right. We're trying to read cues. But there's some people where it's like, I don't have to think about any of that. I'll just be myself. And, uh, and those people often, you know, they know all our quirks, you know, and they make fun of the quirks, but, you know, it's not a shaming make fun of. It's more of like a gracious, like, yeah, you're funny. And we, you know, we love you and your quirks like that. And yet those same people are some of the people that are the most comfortable. It's the easiest for them to call us out and to challenge us. And, you know, when we're going down a path in our life and say, hey, you're going down a path. I'm worried about you. What are you doing? And they can confront us. And... Um, and I think that we all wish that, you know, how we are in those settings, it's like, I wish I could carry that kind of secure presence 
with me everywhere. You know, not just when I'm with those people, but I could, you know, when I'm going to church or I'm going into my workplace, and I could just feel like that. It just have a secure presence that went with me everywhere. And um, God's grace is like that. It is a secure presence that we can carry anywhere. And, you know, the way that Matt described it is that God's grace is like a canopy of benevolence. That was his word that I, I, I really liked. It, it's a canopy that covers both our legitimate shame and our illegitimate shame. And, you know, so, for example, you look at Paul in this passage who, you know, in verse 9 he says, I was a persecutor of the church. He was complicit in a murder. And now he's supposed to be like a church leader. He's supposed to be a pastor and everyone's supposed to look at him as an example. He deserved to be put to death. He deserved God's wrath and curse. And he said, Jesus died in my place. When Jesus died on the cross, that should have been my cross. And Jesus took the curse and wrath in my place. And the canopy of God's grace now covers this seriously legitimate shame that I should be feeling about my life. It's covered. But we also read, you know, Paul was unattractive. And maybe that people, you know, were kind of repelled from him. And he said, Jesus wasn't that way. Jesus welcomed me and he loved me. And then me of all people, he took me and decided to use me powerfully for his kingdom. And, you know, I would have felt like an outcast. And, you know, I was weak and unattractive and I wasn't charismatic. And Jesus brought me and he used me. And uh, three... Uh, Three times in these short verses about how Paul's life changed, he mentions grace. And so the heart of how the Bible says people change is through grace. It is through embracing the canopy of benevolence that God offers us in Jesus. Now I want to pause here for a moment and observe that we're pretty far into a sermon about how people change. And so far we've said that, uh, you know, we have to expose our shame. We have to accept God's grace. And it doesn't really sound like we've done anything so far to change our lives. And, you know, I think most of us, when we think about life change, we think, you know, I'm going to get my life together. I'm going I'm to get some new habits going in my life. I'm going to set some resolutions. I'm going to set some goals for my life. And I'm, by golly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to achieve them this year. And, you know, that's what it means for getting a new start to my life, to change, to uh, uh, um to put new behaviors into my life. And here we're just saying you need to expose your shame and accept God's grace. And what that means is that Christianity says that a changed life always comes from a changed heart first. And shame and grace are about our hearts and what's in our hearts. But you're not wrong that part of a changed life is also what we do. And I, that's the third point that I want to look at this morning is that not only that we have to expose our shame and ex accept God's grace, but we have to experience God's power. To experience change in our lives, we have to experience God's power. And, um, you know, if I could share one other thing from our men's retreat. Yet, uh, last night, Paul Fredette, who's an elder in our church, gave a really... Uh, uh, challenging talk to our men, and he said, you know, it's true that even though, uh, uh, that even though it's true that everything about God's rescue of our lives is a gift of grace, that does not mean it does not involve our effort. 
And, uh, you know, actually I'd been talking to him about his talk earlier in the retreat. He didn't know what passage I was serving, uh, preaching on this morning. And he said to me, you know that place in 1 Corinthians 15 where it said, Paul says, on the contrary, I worked harder than, uh, I worked harder than, uh, what does he say? I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. And he said, you know, I know our church is all about grace. But the apostles said that grace looked like work. It looked like effort in the, in the life of the apostle. And um, what Paul is pointing out here, I think, is one of the most important paradoxes of the Christian life, which is that the only power that can change our lives is grace, the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, of God himself working in our lives. It's the only way we can change. But you will not experience that grace without some effort. You know, so for example, you won't hear about grace unless you go to church. You're not going to hear about grace in the world. The world doesn't have God's grace in the world. The world is ruthless. If you want to hear about grace, you have to go to church or you have to read the Bible. You, will, you can't have a grace-centered life unless you do this simple, you know, put yourself in the place where God's grace is. Or another example uh, you know, for example, uh, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, if you have a conflict with someone and, you know, you come to church and you're bringing your offering uh, to the church and Jesus says, and you remember while you're in the worship service, oh, someone has something against me. You should leave your gift at the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Now, most of us are like, when I got a conflict with someone, I do not want to see them. I'm hoping that, you know, if I just give enough time, it'll get better. You know, pretend it's not there. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, go talk, call them and meet them for coffee and look them in the face and say, I want to work this out. And what will happen, what he promises, is that Jesus is the one who is reconciling all things in heaven and earth. And you won't get to experience that he's doing that unless you put your body at that coffee shop and look them in the face. You won't, or, or Jesus says, I promise to put my words in your mouth by my Holy Spirit. I will give you words. You don't even know what you're going to say. I promise I'll give you words. You will not experience that he, that he will actually give you words unless you show up and, and do what he said. And what Paul is saying here is, I put myself in places to experience God's power, and he was there. He showed up in Corinth when I planted the church, and Paul got to watch God's grace build it. A life changes when we over and over again put the words of Jesus into practice and find that the grace and power of God were present and available and given freely. And what you will find is that despite all of your shame, both the legitimate shame of your, our sins, which are many, and the illegitimate shame of our experience in a fallen and cursed world, God has covered your life with a canopy of his benevolence. His secure presence follows you everywhere. And when you experience that faithfulness, the truth of his promises, then you will be able to say, I am what I am. My whole life has been God's grace from first to last. So praise be to God. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, uh, we uh, thank you for the hope of this text. Ringing with grace over and over again. Hear the apostle. Uh, 
who has done so much more work than any of us, and he attributes it all to your grace. Lord, you know the shame that each one of us faces in our lives, both the legitimate shame from our sins and the illegitimate shame of the lies of this world. We pray that you would teach us what it means to put that shame under that canopy of God's love and grace, that we would know your promises and rest in them, that we might be able to say with Paul, I am what I am, and that we could then put your words into practice and experience your power, that you are indeed with us, your secure presence goes with us. Lord, we long to experience this change in our lives. Uh, Guide us in it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.